So the reading this morning is from Jeremiah. It's on page 755. Jeremiah chapter 1 from verse 1. The words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, one of the priests at Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin. The word of the Lord came to him in the thirteenth year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, and through the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, down to the fifth month of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, when the people of Jerusalem went into exile. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Ah, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I am only a child. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a child. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, Now I have put my words into your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you see, Jeremiah? I see the branch of an almond tree, I replied. The Lord said to me, You have seen correctly, for I am watching to see that my word is fulfilled. The word of the Lord came to me again. What do you see? I see a boiling pot tilting away from the north, I answered. The Lord said to me, from the north, disaster will be poured out on all who live in the land. I am about to summon all the peoples of the northern kingdoms, declares the Lord. Their kings will come and set up their thrones in the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. They will come against her surrounding walls and against all the towns of Judah. I will pronounce my judgments on my people because of their wickedness in forsaking me in burning incense to other gods, and in worshipping what their hands have made. Get yourself ready, stand up, and say to them whatever I command you. Do not be terrified by them, or I will terrify you before them. Today I have made you a fortified city, an iron pillar, and a bronze wall to stand against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but will not overcome you, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Well, do keep it uh, open. We'll, uh, you'll need it in order to uh, follow. And you'll also find it helpful to have uh, that little um, leaflet which has in it an outline 
a timeline and a couple of uh, useful maps. As today we begin a little mini-series um, from the book of the prophet Jeremiah. One of the best-known names but least-known books in the Old Testament is how one commentator sums things up. Now, Jeremiah was active for over 40 years. He had a faithful scribe, Barak, who wrote down much of what he'd said, which is how we come to have 52 chapters um, that compose his book. Uh, this poor guy, Jeremiah, lived at a time when the people of Judah were far, far adrift from God and that things had to get worse before they were to become better. It's quite a difficult book to get a handle on. It's not written chronologically, it's not even written topically, which makes it a bit hard to follow. But it is a book with um, much human interest. Not only do you get into Jeremiah's mind, but through him into the mind or rather the heart of God himself. But before we get into it, we need to get a few historical bearings, get our context, that's where the leaflet particularly will help. So when did it uh, take place? Well, just a bit of context. After about 900 BC, after the days of kings David and Solomon, the kingdom was divided between the northern kingdom centred at Samaria, composed of ten tribes, and the southern kingdom um, of Judah um, centred on Jerusalem and composed of just the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin. The northern kingdom was called the kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom was known as the kingdom of Judah. Throughout the 8th, uh, throughout the 8th and 9th centuries BC the Assyrians were top dog in the ancient Near East. They their homeland was the land where the Kurds live today. Mosul is kind of really the epicentre of where uh, the uh, Assyrians came from. And they were used by the Lord to punish this very wayward northern kingdom. In 722 BC, under Sargon V, Samaria was destroyed and many of the people were taken captive off to other parts of the Assyrian Empire and they were replaced by people from other parts and that's how you eventually end up with um, the Samaritans who are racially and religiously synchronistic. They are mixed up with other races. They weren't kind of um, orthodox uh, Jews. Um, then in 701, just at the very last minute, as the Assyrian armies had conquered the whole of Judah, and they were at the gates of Jerusalem, they were under Sennacherib, and Hezekiah, the king of Judah, repented of their sin, and they were miraculously spared by the Lord. But after Hezekiah, as often in the Old Testament, you get your goodies and your baddies, after Hezekiah, there were wicked kings like Manasseh, who murdered the prophet Isaiah and indulged in such dreadful things as child sacrifice. Once again, Assyria was still the regional superpower and Judah paid tribute, which was a way of kind of um, ensuring some degree of independence, but at quite significant financial cost. It was around 620 BC that Jeremiah embarked upon his prophetic ministry, just as the time when the Assyrian Empire was on the wane. 
For in 612, Nineveh fell to the new rising force, the Babylonians. They came from what is today central and southern Iraq, Babylon and Baghdad are fairly close to one another. At almost exactly the same time, the book of Deuteronomy, which had long been forgotten by the people, was unearthed during some building work in the temple, and it was a revelation to them. The people had been doing all the ritual, but they'd forgotten the reason as to why they were doing these things. The Word of God is the necessary objective standard for all we do, because without it we are adrift. So under King Josiah, religious reforms took place. They were good. The altars at Bethel to various pagan deities were destroyed. The Passover was celebrated in a grand style, such as it hadn't been since the days of Samuel, 400 years before. And Josiah even made a new covenant with the Lord. Now those external changes, with doubtless some degree of um, internal recognition by some, were not enough. You needed a complete change of heart of all the people. Now meanwhile on the international scene, the Egyptians under Pharaoh Necho began to fill the gap left by the Assyrian defeat. Because until then, uh, the Babylonians hadn't pressed westward. They hadn't reached um, Syria, Isaiah or Judah. And so with that kind of vacuum, the Egyptians decided to sort of um, really see what they could do, whether they could actually um, really be top dog in the Levant and leave the Babylonians to Iraq. But in a battle in 605 BC at Carchemish, which is around about where um, Aleppo is today, in Syria, the Babylonians put paid to any kind of Egyptian ideas of aggrandizement, and the Egyptians limped back to the safety of the Nile. And that's where Jeremiah comes in. For without the change of heart, it's all too late. And the Lord's latest agent for judgment is on the rise. He doesn't approve of them, but he uses them. And when they get too big for their boots, like the Assyrians, he cuts them down to size. In the Babylonians' case, by Cyrus the Persian, a couple of centuries later. The people of Judah didn't change, and Jerusalem was sacked by the Babylonians in 597 and 586. And that's in 597 when you get people like Daniel and his friends, who were carted off to Babylon to serve the administration of the empire. And who was Jeremiah? Well, earlier prophets like Isaiah and Micah had been heard, they died, and they'd largely been forgotten. They were in operation just over a hundred years before. And Jeremiah appears on the scene in the public domain in Josiah, King Josiah's 13th year, which we know was 227 BC. And he carried on for 40 years, down to Zedekiah's 11th year, which we know is 587 BC, the time of the second deportation into the exile. But even after that, when he was dragged off to Egypt with Jewish refugees, avoiding exile in Babylon, he carried on and he died a few years later 
alone. Now his name, as in often biblical names, often people who are used by God for um, national purposes, his name has a meaning. And Jeremiah's name means to build up and to throw down. And it's a deliberately ambiguous name, as God does both, depending on his people's behaviour. If they disobeyed, they would be thrown down. If they obeyed, they would be built up. It was simply the outworking of the covenant contract that he had with them. Abide by his commandments and all would go well. Disregard them and it would not. His hometown was Anasoth, which is three miles northeast of Jerusalem. He's from a priestly family. And when he started his prophetic ministry in his late teens or early 20s, he was very nervous. He moved to Jerusalem early on because his family wanted to kill him. His message was not what they nor the religious leaders wanted to hear. He never married, perhaps because God had given him such a tough message to try and communicate to his wayward people that the kind of hurt, aggravation and suffering that he was going to experience would really be too much if he were married. So he was lonely. His inspired analysis of the international scene was that Judah was heading for judgment, that God was going to use these Babylonians to do just this. It would be better, though, if the Judeans recognised this and, as Hezekiah had done a hundred years before, repent and surrender, not only to God, but actually to the Babylonians than ever to try and form alliances with either Egypt or others. But he's also enabled by God to look beyond judgment to a time of restoration, a time when a relationship with God will be individual rather than collective, when it won't just be relying on getting the externals right, but will involve an internal change of heart. Through a time of great tribulation, good will come. And that's the story of the rest of the Old Testament with the restoration from exile and the arrival of Christ, the ultimate Redeemer, and his Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who we recall today, that internalises, makes personal, the relationship that we as individuals can have with God as well as collectively. Well, let's have a look at this chapter. We have Jeremiah's call, verses 4 to 10. We have these two visions, 11 to 16, and we have God's charge and promise. So the call, the word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah says. Now, the opening sentences of Jeremiah's first chapter throw light on the Christian view of inspiration. They state both that these are the words of Jeremiah, verse 1, and that the word of the Lord came to him, verse 2. So scripture is neither the word of God only, nor the words of men only, but scripture is the word of God through the words of men. And this double authorship of Scripture is one that we need to hold fast to. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. 
That's what God says to Jeremiah. It is the fact that God knows us and relates to us that gives us our significance from the time that we're conceived. And that means that to take life is always wrong. The only, sometimes it is permissible, but in scripture the only biblical grounds on which to take life are by the judicial execution of the government or acting in self-defense. Now the word to know in Hebrew is more than just intellectual knowledge. It is the whole of us, mind, will and emotion, intellect, volition and our feelings. It is uh, an intimate package involving the whole of us. And for that reason it is used in scripture of the relationship between a husband and wife and of God and his people. It was God's grief that there was at this time no knowledge of him among his people. For knowledge of him was much more important than getting all the ritual right. We carry on. Before you were born, I set you apart, God says to him. To be set apart by God is for a distinctive task. And he was appointed to be a prophet or a spokesman for God to the nations, not just to Judah. You see, there's no limit to God's sovereignty. And so there were no limits to the scope of Jeremiah's ministry. It was a formidable task and no wonder he was hesitant. I do not know how to speak. I am only a child or a youth, he says. He feels immediately out of his depth at the prospect of such a role. He'd not had the training or the experience that builds up confidence for such a public profile. And the Lord's response to him, verse 7, Do not say, I am only a child. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. The God of all nations and all time demands that he go wherever, whenever he directs. So first and foremost, you change a nation for good, any nation, by the word of God, by people's uh, framework for understanding life to actually correspond with God's understanding of life. 18th century Britain, to give an example, was called the moral leper of Europe. Its inhumanity was terrible, but that inhumanity gave way to a humanitarianism, a Christian humanitarianism of the 19th century and the first half of the 20th century, undoubtedly due to the evangelical revival rather than the ideology of the French Revolution. Because with the people like Whitfield, who was once a curate at Dummer, or Wesley, who came through Basingstoke and famously said, we were thick of head and like the wild beasts of Ephesus. These guys had the Bible at the centre of their thinking and the country adopted it and it transformed it in that century. 1715 was very different from 1815 in the life of our nation. 
And the nation of Judah was in a mess because it had lost the Bible, or however much of the Bible had been written in those days. But it was found again in the days of King Josiah. He was carrying out building work, and they found the scroll of the book of Deuteronomy. And for them, they began a reformation, similar to the kind of reformation that our country went through after the days of Whitfield and Wesley, and one which we need today. We need our public consensus to conform more to the way of thinking of God's revealed mind in Scripture. Because as we deviate from it, it really messes up loads of people's lives, big time. But if we follow it, it's just kind of the way that we are constructed as human beings. If we follow it, things generally work out better. Sure, we live in a fallen world and things go wrong, seemingly randomly, to people. But basically, if we follow God's take on life, then it'll be better for us than if we don't. It's just the way that we are made. The Bible has to kind of, um, and its thinking has to recapture centre ground in the way in which our public um, debates are and our church debates. Jeremiah, as we uh, find, has a tall order, but he has a reassuring promise, verse 8. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Sovereign Lord. And that's not just a nice thought of a well-wisher who really has no control over the situation or knowledge of it. It's an, assur it's an assurance from um, a competent authority is what we need in such situations. So if my starter motor is a bit iffy, I don't want my wife telling me and no disrespect to her, that it'll be all right, because she isn't a mechanic. And in complete fairness, neither am I. So if it was my starter motor, as if it was her starter motor, then I would just be giving kind of bland, little kind of meaningless kind of well-wishing to say it'll be fine, because I don't know any, I don't even know where it is, let alone... Um, <laughs> but, you know, in the old days, you could just hit it with a hammer and it would probably work, but... Now you need some computer degree to get the thing to go. But Jeremiah's assurance is from just such a competent authority. It is from the sovereign Lord, the one who is in charge of all things. Coming from him, the encouragement is worth everything. Now there are a lot of symbolic visions and actions in the book of Isaiah. And here we have the first. He sees the Lord stretching out his hand to touch his mouth. The, the accompanying words explain the significance. Now I have put my words in your mouth, verse 9. It is instructive, I think, also, whilst we're on Jeremiah's call, to um, contrast it with that of the prophet Isaiah. Both of them involve ascending to Isaiah. The Lord had asked, whom shall I send? To Jeremiah, he said, you must go to everyone I send to you. But there are differences. In the case of Isaiah, at least after his lips had been cleansed, he readily volunteered his services. He said, here I am, send me. Whereas in the case of Jeremiah, he was reluctant, like Moses before him. 
on account of his youth and inexperience. Ah, sovereign Lord, he protested, I do not know how to speak. I'm only a child. For one, you know, but you might think, well, is there a contradiction here with what Jesus says? But Jesus actually commended the humility of a child, whereas the Lord here is rebuking Jeremiah for pleading the irresponsibility of a child. There's another similarity between the calls of Isaiah and Jeremiah, is that in both cases there's a prominent feature concerning their sense of inadequacy in their lips in Isaiah's case and in the mouth Jeremiah's case. Isaiah was conscious that his lips were unclean and Jeremiah was conscious that he didn't know what to say. So before they could assume the prophetic office, Isaiah's lips were cleansed by a burning coal and Jeremiah's mouth was touched by the divine hand, symbolising the fact that Yahweh, the Lord, had put his words in Jeremiah's mouth. And then we have his message, verse 10. See today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. Jeremiah was told that the message would be both negative, destroying and overthrowing, and positive, building and planting. The Lord wants Jeremiah to carry out what his name means, to tear down and to build up. And this was elaborated in two visions. First, Jeremiah saw the branch of an almond tree, verse 11. The Hebrew word for almond tree resembles the word watching, and so signified the Lord's promise, I am watching to see that my word is fulfilled, verse 12. And secondly, Jeremiah saw a boiling pot tilting away from the north, in, words, in other words, an invading enemy coming. So let's have a look at these two visions, the almond tree and the boiling pot. Verse 11, the word of the Lord came to me. What do you see, Jeremiah? I see the branch of an almond tree, I replied. And the Lord said to me, you have seen correctly, for I am watching to see that my word is fulfilled. The first vision of a branch of an almond tree the first tree to bud in spring, um, is significant. Anathoth, even today, is a centre for almond growing around Jerusalem. In Hebrew, the word for almond tree and watching are, in fact, they sound the same. It is, in other words, a word play. As he looks at the tree, the thought of watching comes into his mind. The Lord watching over the message he will give to Jeremiah to broadcast, and that he will bring it into reality. All that, he says, will happen. The second vision is more sinister and may not have been uh, encountered at the same time as, as either the call or the first vision. Jeremiah sees this pot or this cauldron boiling over on uneven ground so that the liquid was spilling out of one corner. The scene Jeremiah could have witnessed many times in his own village. But in the international context, he sees the hand of God using a force from the north once again to discipline his people. Verse 14, from the north, disaster will be poured out on all who live in the land. 
whether that was going to be the Assyrians as in the past or someone else. If this is about 627 BC, then he may not have known at that time that it was going to be the Babylonians. Now, of course, if you look at one of the maps I've given you of the ancient Near East, you can see that at best the Assyrians are northeast and the Babylonians are definitely due east. So what does it mean about coming from the north? Aren't they coming from a different direction? Well, simply, because the only way an army from either what is today northern Iraq or central or southern Iraq could reach um, Israel, Judah, the only way they could do it is by going up in that arc, what is called the Fertile Crescent. That's where the rivers are. That's where you get kind of water and you get um, food in order to feed your army on the march. Try going from Jerusalem to Baghdad in a straight line and it's completely desert once you get past Amman. That's what it means. They will come from the north because basically that's the way to get there. Now why was the Lord going to do it? Well, the people had broken the deal that they'd had with him. Instead of devotion and obedience, they flirted with other neighbouring religious deities and adopted their horrific and immoral practices. God had been patient, but he could not let this continue. So we have his charge and promise to Jeremiah in 17 to 19. Get yourself ready. Stand up and say to them, whatever I command you, do not be terrified by them, or I will terrify you before them. With God on your side, there's nothing to worry about. Without him, there is everything to worry about. Verse 18, today I have made you a fortified city, an iron pillar and a bronze wall to stand against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests and the peoples of the land. This is a way of saying that one plus God is a majority. Or as the Russian writer and Christian Alexander Solzhenitsyn famously said, one word of truth outweighs the whole world. Verse 19, they will fight against you but will not overcome you, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. And that's just what happened. Jeremiah had a hard life with a lot of opposition. We watch his very human reactions to every situation. Kings, courtiers, priests and the people are all against him. His own priestly family oppose him. He's put in the stocks and thrown into a cistern. God's word, though, burns like fire in his bones. He cannot hold it in. But nobody listens to him. He is essentially a patriot, but is thought to be a traitor. He witnesses the decline and the death of his own nation. Even the Lord at times seems to be against him. He is alone and he is in anguish. He weeps bitter tears, we read in chapter 4 and chapter 9. But the Lord is invincible and overcame it and brought about all that the prophet had spoken of. Even though Jeremiah didn't live long enough to receive the return from exile and the re-establishment of God's people in God's land with their temple. And of course, he certainly did long, didn't live long enough to see the achievements of Christ. But he was in tune with God rather than the rest of them. God won out in the end. So as we uh, end, some very simple reminders here. It is God's world, all of it, 
and every one. Which means, of course, that he either permits everything that happens or he directs everything that happens, which it is, you'd need to be a prophet in the Old Testament or apostle in the New Testament to have the divine infallible take on the political analysis. But ultimately he is in charge and he therefore must permit everything or direct everything. He's made us to live in a certain way and that way is non-negotiable. But our generation is very keen on renegotiation, so it's currently under God's judgment. And that judgment will ultimately take place on the last day. There is a way of escape though, there is hope. If we listen to God's spokesmen, who are principally the prophets of the Old Testament and the apostles of the New Testament, and the role that we secondarily derive from them is to bear witness to God's word, to God's take on his grand plan and on the way we should live. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, brief introduction to Jeremiah and we are reminded that you are in control, that you have the definitive analysis and that your plans and purposes will come about. We pray that that might increase our confidence and trust in you and that we might in the meantime uh, be advocates of your analysis on life the way to live, the way to reconnect with you and to know from you how exactly the future will end when there is a new heaven and a new earth. Amen.